I'd like to dedicate this talk to my teacher of long ago, my very first formal spiritual teacher. He was an Indian sage. I met him 30 years ago, last week. It was 30 years. And when I met him, what struck me, this was in India, what struck me was that he was at peace with himself. There was an energy around him that was very, very still. Nothing seemed to perturb him. He was like a young boy, but he was an old man. He had many qualities that I had never seen in another human being, and I couldn't understand how could someone be like that? It was like sitting under the shade of a big tree, a very big tree. And if it were to thunder or rain or blow very hard, I could sit there and not be afraid. It was a strange place, and there were many things to be afraid of. There were scorpions and snakes, and it was very dark. There was no electricity at night. We didn't have a toilet. If I had to go in the night, I had to go in the field. And I used to chant to myself, to the scorpions, I'm coming, step out of the way. Please don't step in my way. And that was a way I could encourage myself to go into the dark and uh, squat somewhere in the dark and not be scared that I would get bitten. But I felt very protected, very, very protected. And I wanted to fathom what is it that makes a human being so lovely? so loving, so unconditionally loving. We called him Baba, which just means Grandpa. I was the only female Western disciple of this particular village elder. Many people used to come to the temple to see him, usually old men, you know, with in that society, the women are kept in the background, and the men go out and visit, and uh, women also go to the temple, but not, not late at night, and certainly not to such a, at that time, remote place, jungly place, as they used to call it. And the people that came to visit Baba were from all kinds of families. But they were gentle people, kind people. Whether they were farmers or engineers, there was even a local Raja who came from a royal family. And all his kin used to come and pay respects to this teacher. And so one night when a group of us were sitting around him, it was silent. We were just meeting with the Holy Sage, where you're having a glimpse. Does anybody know what Darshan is? having a glimpse of truth or a divine presence or a sacred meeting. So 
So we were all basking in the presence of this wonderful saint, in the shade of his loving kindness. And it was late at night, because no one wanted to leave. Such a stillness, such a silence, such a feeling of safety. No one wanted to go home. And suddenly the door burst open, and this tall guy comes strutting in. He had a big beard and a filthy cloth wrapped around his head and a huge rifle, enormous rifle. He looked really wild. And my immediate assumption was, bandit, he will rob you. He collapsed in a heap at Baba's feet. I was so impressed. I thought this tough-looking character with, with the gun, the rifle, collapsing at the feet of a sage. And Baba slapped him on the back affectionately as if he were a kid. And I thought, oh, he was showing him so much love. And something in me felt a little, oh, he doesn't deserve it. Making very quick judgments. And then, suddenly it occurred to me that he was going to sit down. There was no room. We were squeezed all together. It was a tiny little room. We were all already bumper to bumper. <laughs> and I thought, where is this huge man going to sit? He's not going to sit next to me. <laughs> There's kind of unfriendly thoughts coming up. And I remember this so distinctly. Well, of course, he came and sat right next to me. Not only that... But he squatted down, and it was basically shove over. I had to breathe in and restrain my mind from hating him. This feeling of that I was better somehow, that I deserved to be there, and he didn't. Besides, he had a rifle. He was obviously a violent person. And then after he sat down and... My breath got calm again. My mind was getting a little bit quieter. And I was just breathing in and out and trying to get used to this cramped position. Suddenly, Baba said, I love everyone the same. That's all. was such a teaching. He saw the whole thing. He knew my heart. Maybe some of the other people there were thinking similar things. I don't know. I thought it was directed at me. But later after Baba died and some of us would sit around and tell stories, we discovered that so many of those moments we thought the teaching was for us. But it was for everyone. We were all having that same feeling at all. That was personally for me. But it was a universal teaching. I love everyone the same. No matter who it is, no matter where they come from, no matter what they bring here, I love them the same. And so, as we sit and practice this concentration, bringing our mind to the present moment. And things come up in consciousness, memories about how we were when we were kids, 
or thoughts about how we are now. And the mind starts to push things away or grasp and wanting things. Certain moments are peaceful, other moments there's a great storm blowing and we hate it. But how can we love everything the same? It's not just a question of loving every person the same. This is something we have to apply within us. How do I come to a place of pure love within me so that whatever energy is arising in my heart, I can receive I can accept it fully. I don't have to run away anymore. I don't have to change it. I don't have to add anything to it. This is really the position of a mother with her children. I remember when I worked for UNICEF in Nepal, we used to go out and visit families that were malnourished. Once we went to a very impoverished district and we came upon a family and the mother had more than ten children. She had just given birth to twins and um, my colleague and myself were invited into her very meager shack and sat down and she eagerly handed me one of the twins with the heart of a mother, like, here's my precious little child. So this was already her ninth and tenth child. They were really, really poor. The husband was mad. She had one buffalo, which she had to milk herself. Their crops lay uh, dried out in the field. And her kids used to go and scavenge for food. They were all malnourished. But this baby was so undernourished that even though it was several weeks old, it was grotesque. It didn't look like a human being. I couldn't even conceive how it was alive. So undernourished was this child. But it didn't matter to her. It was her baby. And she held it out to me as if it was the most beautiful thing in the world. And I never, I could never forget that moment of realizing, oh yeah, it's a human being. And so, like Baba saying, I love everyone the same, I realized even then, and that was many years after that teaching, I still... Still, the, you know, the mind was choosing. This is beautiful, this is not. This is lovely, this is not. This is lovable, this is not. How can we, it, as human beings, if, our, if we have such preferences in our external experiences, then how can we love the inner experiences unilaterally? Each one in the same way. How can we do this? I think this takes the quality of the Buddha mind. 
I believe that the Buddha was like a great mother. Often in the suttas, he uses the image of a mother's love for her child as the most powerful love in the world. That she would, even as a mother, takes care of her child, loves her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should we cherish all living beings. This is the kind of love that the Buddha brought to each one of his devotees or even to anyone who came to him for teaching. He had the ability to know their hearts and to meet them at the place where they were. And if they were ready to receive teaching, he would give them teaching. And if they were not, he wouldn't because they were not ready and he knew. This is like a mother that knows what to feed her children and what not to feed them, what they can digest and what they can't digest. How can we train ourselves to have that kind of unbiased mind, a mind of unconditioned compassion, The way that we can do this is by cultivating the Eightfold Path, by following the instructions of our teacher, the Buddha himself. Now, he didn't give us instructions that we cannot follow. He said, abandon unwholesomeness. Unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome speech, unwholesome conduct, these things are to be abandoned. If it were impossible to abandon them, he says, he would not tell us to do so. It is because it is possible to do so that he exhorts us to abandon unwholesomeness. What does this have to do with mindfulness of the present moment? Everything. Everything, doesn't it? Because we want to choose the moment. We want the moment to be a certain way. We don't want it to be a bandit with a rifle, with a big black beard towering over us, shoving us into a corner. We don't want to be a terrified kid cowering under the monsters of our imagination or our memory. We don't want to be a cramped up, neurotic, obsessed, depressed, despairing, resentful, frustrated, bored, arrogant, scared, jealous, We want to be free. All those kinds of mind states are based on grasping the present moment in the wrong way. When we're able 
to approach the present moment from a place of pure love, kind of love of a mother, then none of those kind of negative emotions, afflictive emotions, distorted perceptions, insults in the mind, burdens in the heart, none of them appear. They are unable to touch us. We come from a place of strength, of understanding, of trust. We have a real refuge. So whatever comes towards us, we can breathe into it. We can rest. We can smile. The main problem that we have is that we stray from that kind of posture. And we keep going back into the past, believing the habits of the mind. And we keep rushing into the future, wanting things to be a certain way. And we take those unstable mind states into the present moment, and in whatever way it arises, we paste that false reality on top of it. Be like this. We, we demand things from it. Or we try to push it back. Get away. We're not willing to listen. We're not willing to let go. The power of concentration is that when the mind and the energy of the mind is fully connected to the breath, and all the mental formations have become pulled together into one flowing, loving energy that embraces the breath, receives the breath, gives fullness to the breath, flowers in the breath. With this kind of loving quality, it's a pure love, it's unconditional doesn't ask anything of the breath. Now look here, breath. It doesn't bargain. You think, oh, if I can have that blissful experience again, um, I'll just keep meditating. Not to bargain. If I can get rid of my fear, I'll be a Buddhist. That's not what this practice is about. No bargaining here. It's about accepting everything with a mind that understands there's no one there to be afraid. Who is there in that pure energy of the present moment? No one. So the closer we come to the reality that the present moment reveals to us by our willingness to look at it with pure love, with purity of attention, and that is with right view or right understanding and a pure heart, what we begin to see is it arises and ceases. It is impermanent. 
This is very important. It's impermanent and it's constantly changing and it cannot fulfill us in, in any way that we want it to be. The fulfillment comes in just being able to be with it. That kind of stillness of everything. No longer a thought of wanting. The opposite of craving. Love, true love, doesn't demand anything from anyone anymore. That's what brings us home. That's what takes us to the place of real shelter. So then even the most terrifying moment is what? And then we remember again that little bird this morning. It was a terrible storm. How come that little bellbird could cry out stronger than the terrible storm? Because it was true to itself. Totally true to itself. I was going to read this passage to you. It's um, also about birds, since we're on the topic of birds. And it's from the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the connected discourses of the Buddha. This is the Mahavaga, and it's called the Hawk. Everyone loves a story, so just listen. Monks or bhikkhus, also meaning contemplatives, and we are that, each one of us. Once in the past, a hawk suddenly swooped down and seized a quail. Then, while the quail was being carried off by the hawk, he lamented. We were so unlucky, of so little merit. We strayed out of our own resort into the domain of others, said the little quail. If we had stayed in our own resort today, in our own ancestral domain, this hawk would not have stood a chance against me in a fight. But what is your own resort, quail? What is your own ancestral domain? This is what the hawk said the freshly plowed field covered with clods of soil. Quail answered. And then the hawk, confident of her own strength, not boasting of her own strength, released the quail, saying, Go now, quail, but even there you won't escape me. And then the quail went to a freshly plowed field covered with clods of soil. Having climbed up on a large clod, he stood there and addressed the hawk, Come and get me now, hawk. Come and get me now, hawk. And then the hawk, confident of her own strength, not boasting of her own strength, 
folded up both her wings and suddenly swooped down on the quail. But when the quail knew that hawk has come close, he slipped inside that clod of earth, and then the hawk was shattered on the spot. So it is when one strays outside one's own resort into the domain of others. Therefore, do not stray outside your own resort into the domain of others. Mara will gain access to those who stray outside their own resort into the domain of others. Mara will get a hold on them. Now you all know what Mara is in Buddhist terminology. It's like the personification of unwholesomeness. It's a sort of Buddhist devil. Sometimes even appearing as a real person in the scriptures and sometimes as a sort of fallen deva or fallen angel. And then the Buddha goes on to explain this simile. What is not a contemplative's own resort, but the domain of others? It is the five chords of sensual pleasure. What five? Forms cognizable by the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasurable, sensually enticing, tantalizing. Sounds cognizable by the ear that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasurable, tantalizing. Odors cognizable by the nose that are lovely, pleasurable, agreeable, tantalizing. Tastes cognizable by the tongue. Desirable, lovely, agreeable, sensually tantalizing. Tactile objects cognizable by the body that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, etc. These are the five chords of sensual pleasure. This is what is not a contemplative's own resort, but the domain of others. Move in your own resort, contemplatives, in your own ancestral domain. Mara will not gain access to those who move in their own resort, in their own ancestral domain. Mara will not get a hold. Now what is the Buddha talking about? How we get distracted by sights, sounds, forms, pleasurable tastes, smells, sensations, by even the memories of these, by even the thoughts about how we might acquire these in the future, how we have had them in the past. Thoughts of things we like, things we don't like. Memories of experiences that have been unpleasant or pleasant. Constant stream of 
sensations, a constant stream of distractions in the mind as we approach the breath. I'm bored, I'm restless, I'm angry, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm worried. My breath, me, mine. I'm better than you, I'm worse, I'm no good. I'm this, I'm that, this I'm constant stream of obsession with self, obsession with sights, sounds, tastes, sensations, pleasant, unpleasant, thoughts in the mind, the wanting, the craving, carrying us away like that hawk, and off we go, into the past, into the future, where's the brick? Where is the ability to sit, purely present, safe, at peace, aware, undisturbed, able to love each moment the same as the next? And so the Buddha tells us to move in our own resort, not to wander into areas that don't belong to us because they are dangerous, just like the hawk. When the hawk tried to get the quail in its own domain, it was shattered right then and there. Where is our own domain? It is in mindfulness, in sati-sampajanya. This is not just an ordinary mindfulness that we practice in daily life when we talk on the phone, or we set the table, or we get dressed, or we drive in a car, or we switch on our computer. It's not a superficial mindfulness. It's a recollectedness, a remembering, a being in the breath completely. It's a total relinquishment of the outside world of the whole sensory realm that arises at the mind door, at the eyes, ears, nose, mouth, sense of touch. It's a relinquishment of all those kinds of experience so that we are profoundly entering the internal world and abiding. That is our true resort. And if we are abiding therein, no one Nothing, if we are abiding correctly, with balanced, deeply immersed mindfulness focused on the breath, like the quail hiding in the clod of earth, Mara cannot enter there, cannot get access to us. It's as if the mind is sealed. It's as if we are sheltered, like when I sat under the shade of this loving sage and felt completely protected. We don't have to sit in the presence of a a sage. We have the potential to be that sage ourselves if we can abide in our own true home, which is here. What is that resort? What is our ancestral domain? Ancestral. It's our birthright. 
It's not something we have to earn. It's not that we're bad and we have to be good in order to deserve to abide in that place of purity. It is our birthright. It is our ancestral domain, our ancestral home. It is the four foundations of mindfulness. Just what we talked about today. Mindfulness of the body. We dwell contemplating the body in the body. Ardent, clearly aware, mindful, having removed greed and hatred in regard to the world. That means we're not grabbing onto the moment nor are we pushing it away. We dwell contemplating feelings and feelings. Ardent, clearly aware, mindful, having removed any kind of greed, hatred, or confusion from the mind. And the same with the contents of consciousness, mindful of the mind, and mindful of Dhamma, mindful of even the hindrances. We are mindful of the hindrances as they arise and cease. So instead of being frightened of them, there's worry, oh, there's anger, there's fear, there's sleepiness, oh no, not again. We just know, ah, oh, hindrance. So even the hindrances become objects of awareness. We turn them from being maras into being paving stones to Nibbana. Nothing can deter us from that true abiding because it is our home because we are human beings, because we have come to the teaching, because we have the understanding of its preciousness, we drink from the well of truth. We have a right to do so. All we have to do is trust in the present moment. Approach the present moment like a mother holds her little child holding it in that way. Whatever it is to be cherished, to be deeply treasured, like a jewel. This, this is coming to understand the refuge of Buddha, wisdom, Dhamma, truth, and Sangha. Those who practice those who are on the holy path. We find those jewels here, not nowhere else. So you don't have to know why one, one experience lasts longer than another. You don't have to give any importance to those thoughts. Just emptying the mind again and again and trusting in the present moment. We can do this. We are doing this. And we can rejoice. Feel the gladness in your heart.
It's said that Mara is our best friend. Why is that? Because Mara never lets us go until we gain enlightenment. Keep pestering us. So in that way, we have to think it's like a goad that keeps driving us towards our own liberation. So no experience is without its value, no matter how unpleasant. We can turn it into something for the good, something that will throw light in the mind and help us to free ourselves. Finally, somebody asked me, how can we gain control over our thoughts? Well, the only way to gain control over the thoughts is to continuously develop this sati-sampajanya, this deep clarity of mind, clear seeing with wisdom, undistracted mindfulness, intensive attention and awareness of, of this moment as it arises, and continually making the right effort. So when there's unwholesomeness in the mind, we turn towards wholesomeness. If the mind is distracted, we bring it back. If we are thinking angry thoughts, we bring up metta in the heart, loving kindness. We abandon unwholesomeness just like the Buddha exhorted us to do. It is only by fulfilling the Eightfold Path that we can gain control over our minds and use these minds in the right way. Otherwise, what is the use to come to a monastery? What is the use to sit here silently for hours and hours on end? What is the use to pursue all the pleasures of the sense realm, the five chords of pleasure, hoping to find happiness? Because we know where the real happiness lies. And knowing that, we won't waste any time allowing our minds to drift away, to be seduced left and right by sights, sounds, tastes, pleasant feelings, pleasant odors, pleasant thoughts, distracted thoughts. We will continuously devote ourselves dedicate our energy towards this work. And if we, if we can gain enough ground during this kind of situation, this kind of practice together, then when we go back in the world and life assaults us with difficult situations, we will have practiced enough to develop a sharp tool that we can use at any time. This is like a dress rehearsal. Even if you cannot gain concentration, at least you can be mindful. If you are always mindful, 
you may gain concentration. But whether you do or not, perpetual mindfulness is the remedy against depression. Perpetual mindfulness. Because in a moment when we're not mindful, what will happen? The hawk will come swooping down and we will have nowhere to hide and it will grab us in its talons and away. We'll be moaning and groaning and sobbing our hearts out and being miserable. Or we'll be dancing and reveling in distracted confusion, wasting our lives. But if we are practicing perpetual mindfulness, that's the remedy not only for depression, it is the remedy for ignorance itself, the remedy for unhappiness of any kind. It is the remedy for false happiness. If you are always mindful, even when you are tired or disinclined, you will have nothing to regret. Can you imagine? Looking back on your life, supposing we all had to die in the next moment, and we haven't finished giving up all the things we cherish, we haven't finished rehearsing, is there something we will, something we will regret? It, will we be not quite ready? But if we are perpetually mindful, then we will have no regrets, even if we have to die in the next moment. This is our final refuge. It cannot fail. It is not achieved without perpetual effort. And perpetual effort is not easy. You all know this. Unless you determine on this effort, you are lost. This is written in fair weather. Read it in foul. I think that's enough for tonight.